of Shot Reverse Shot of 2013. Um, I'm Joe Gastineau and joining me from across the Atlantic as always is uh, Davis. How are you doing sir? Very well thank you. How was your new year? Uh, it was alright. You know it was pretty low key. Uh, I went to Sussex. <laughs> there you go. That's the exactly most, what I did. The most hung- key of places. Yeah I hung out on the battlefield where the Battle of Hastings was. Uh, it was pretty uh, pretty, pretty cool. Uh, how would you, you were ill I believe over Christmas and New Year. Yeah, on um, New Year's Day itself, I just kind of had sort of cold, fluey sort of thing, which uh, meant that I couldn't uh, party like it was 1999 or 2013. Um, but it was uh, it was all right. It was by by the evening, I wasn't as bad as I was when I sort of woke up. When I woke up, I was feeling really, really bad. But uh, as it got closer to the new year, I started feeling better and better, which uh, gives me hope for the year ahead. Well, the year ahead is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about 2013, having a look into the crystal ball of uh, the, the film future and uh, picking out some highlights and uh, definitely some lowlights um, about you know what, what you guys are going to see. You shit munchers at home, uh, we're going to we're going to tell you what to watch because uh, you need the guidance. Because if we didn't tell you, you'd just be you know dribbling into your popcorn waiting for something to explode. So we're going to educate you with uh, some films and also yeah that kind of thing look ahead at uh, kind of the award season at the end we're going to run down our top 10 most anticipated films of the year so if we don't mention an obvious one at the start it's probably going to be in our top 10 so you know don't despair um but uh, topically ed and i'm going to say this to you uh, now before the golden globes has happened and by the time it airs all the gongs would have been handed out um we're in the midst of award season aren't we um, it's a quite a predictable spread of, of, of films being nominated for the, the three big ones, the Globes, the Oscars and the BAFTAs. Uh, what did you make of uh, this week's announcements and, and uh, today, yesterday's winners? Uh, yeah, well, as you say, it's pretty much all the films that people have been touting as frontrunners for months. It's been incredibly uh, easy to kind of guess the the selection um lincoln obviously is is the dominant one and um i think at this stage probably the likely winner mm. um prior to this week i think everyone was thinking it was probably going to be like zero dark 30 and zero dark 30 probably still got a chance but it's become such a, a controversy magnet um in the states certainly with awards members um saying they're not going to vote for it because it's pro torture and things like that um which i think is nonsense but um, that's what a lot of a few people have kind of vocally said, and, and that if that mood kind of prevails, then that might count against it. And, and Lincoln seems like the easy consensus choice because um, Spielberg's not won an Oscar in a while. I think they all think that you know that they should they should hand him one at some point. But but Link, Lincoln's a really good film. Um, it is it is a it is um, a really entertaining and uh, biopic that avoids most of the pitfalls of. of the genres we've discussed in the past about all the things that most biopics do horribly wrong. Um, yeah. And obviously it's got a great performance by Daniel Day-Lewis and everyone, literally everyone is in it. All the actors. I thought it's kind of a, it's like a Rosetta Stone of 2012 cinema because if you look at it, almost everyone in it has been in another film in 2012. So if anyone wants to just kind of get a sense of the year, they just really need to watch Lincoln. 
Le- uh, Les Mis, that has been uh, very popular. Um, it's very hard for me to kind of comment a lot on these. I mean, because there were nine films um, nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, and us poor bastards in Blighty still haven't seen half of them. Uh, I think uh, Les Mis came out yesterday, um, and we've got uh, Django next week, and then the week after is Lincoln and Zero Dark Thirty, so we haven't even seen half the ones that are uh, nominated yet, which is shit. But it does mean that you've got a hell of a January ahead of you. Uh, yeah, we do. I'm not going to see any of them. I'll just uh, just wait and see what happens at the Oscars and whatever wins. I'll just say that was my favourite. <laughs> um, uh, the BAFTAs was a bit baffling this year for the same reason. They nominated all of those films that I've just mentioned that aren't out, uh, which is a kind of a peculiar thing. It seems to be aping the Oscars kind of needlessly um, and showing a very kind of... Uh, uh, short shrift to to British films, it seems. Although you know, it's tried to give as many awards to Skyfall as it can. Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, usually the Baftas are pretty good about that. They've been they've been a lot better um, in sort of recent years about recognising films that people have actually had the chance to see. But um, I think this year, just the way that the scheduling's kind of worked out, there's lots of films that technically qualify because I think they go from the date of one award ceremony to the date of the next. Right. Rather than, say, from the date of nominations to the, the date of nominations at the other end. So it has to... So because te- all of those films will be released before the BAFTA ceremony itself. Yeah, just. They can all... They, they're all eligible to be voted for, especially because, you know, people will be getting screeners and stuff, um, which is kind of stupid um, in in terms of, you know, because they're essentially celebrating films that people haven't had a chance to see in the yeah. most part. Mm. But, um, you know, on the other level, they they are trying to kind of ape the Oscars uh, and pre and, uh, predate the Oscars, but in the process they've kind of ended up weirdly mirroring them. Yeah. Um, there weren't really any surprises other than, um, you know, Seth MacFarlane being nominated for an Oscar, which is something, you know... Uh, <laughs> leaves a bit of taste even though I don't really give a shit about the Oscars I mean they've always been you know crap really like you know, if you look back through the the best picture winners from you know 1927 or whenever it started to now uh, 50% of them are kind of undeserving shit and 50% of them are you know great films so what are you going to do <laughs> you're not yeah. going to like moan about it well, too much I think the, the the biggest surprise, personally for me, um, was the amount of uh, awards that um, Amor has got, the Michael Haneke film, because um, basically Oscar doesn't recognise films that aren't in English in to that extent. That's why they have the the foreign language Oscar ghetto essentially, yep. where they just mm-hmm. send the films that are all really good, but you have to read them. So yeah, it's um, like the um, the kids' table at Christmas dinner. Is there yeah. a separate little table? It's the exact same thing that kind of stops um, animated films from doing quite as well as perhaps they deserve until, you know, they expanded the nominations and Pixar started getting films uh, entered in there. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, the it's uh, it's also interesting with Amour that because everyone was expecting it to get a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film and probably for Best Actress, in the same way that sort of Beautiful did with Javier Bardem a few years ago, because they usually, if they're not, the, the best chance they get is maybe something in writing and maybe something in the acting categories, but nothing in the major, the, the, the two biggies. So to see it get Michael Haneke nominated for 
picture director and screenplay, especially given the career that he's had as someone who's kind of resolutely not uh, someone who directs kind of Oscar films. Mm. Um, you couldn't imagine Funny Games getting a, a nod for Best Director or um, The Piano Teacher or anything. He's always been someone who's whose films are... It, they're, they're not too extreme, but they're too kind of gruelling and austere yeah. to be... Uh, to be awards favourites for something like the Oscars which is kind of fluffy mm. uh, and celebrates stuff that's accessible and you know uh, uh, Amour is probably the most accessible film that he's made in that it's it's emotionally punishing but uh, in a slightly nice, in a slightly more palatable way Yeah, it's uh, old people dying, is that right? Yeah, instead of uh, young people torturing each other which is... Oh sweet So it's obviously a big difference yeah. Um, so and our, the, our um, sorry, our, our number one film of the year, Searching for Sugar Man, landed itself a uh, Oscar nod, which is very nice. I mean, like it was. It, there's been such um, love for it and such praise that that's hardly surprising in a way, because I think um, a lot of it, certainly me and you have been kind of lauding it at every opportunity, and a lot of other people have have been very positive about it as well. So Are you just, taking responsibility for its Oscar nomination? Because I think we probably should. Yeah, I think so. I think we're the only people to put it as the best film of the year. Um, and I'm not going to check to see if that's correct or not. I'm just going to assume. Um, no, yeah, I'll assume away. So um, I think even though... Oh, also, the thing with the Oscars is that they they basically started as a way for the film industry to um, publicise itself, you know, to kind of draw attention to the, to the product that was out there in a big, big glitzy, glamorous way. And um, that's kind of... You kind of feel that's a little unnecessary for something like Lincoln, which has already made loads of money. But, you know, for something like Amour or Searching for Sugarman, which probably have done well in their own right, but perhaps haven't made quite as big of an impact as all those other films, you know, a nomination can do a lot in terms of getting people to seek them out. Right, uh, let's move on from this uh, Oscar glow BAFTA nonsense and talk about some bloody films that are going to come out this year. I thought, Ed, we could start with uh, At the Bottom and talk about uh, some of those blockbusters that they have now. Uh, yeah, I think this, in terms of blockbusters, I think this is going to be a very interesting year because there's there's a couple of films that off the bat you can see are going to be big because they're big franchise ones. Um, Iron Man 3 is probably going to be massive because it's coming off of the back of the Avengers. Oh, and Shane, uh, Shane Black's taking over, hasn't he? Which uh, has me very, very excited because... That can only uh, be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, like, John Favreau did an okay job with the first two, but uh, I don't think... Um, I think what the Avengers kind of proved is that those films tend to be a lot more interesting if you get people involved who are sort of more single-minded as writers. Like is that... People, um... Oh, sorry, is that Downey's Junior's call? Because I mean, they, obviously those two worked together on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, I believe you... I believe he was it, he was the one who kind of stumped for Shane Black because I don't think he's at the top of anyone's list to kind of direct a two hundred million dollar blockbuster. Mm. Good though he is, I think that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on you as your only prior directorial efforts probably not going to sway a lot of people. No. But, you know, if Downey Jr. says so, then then it's all good. Uh, we've also got Thor 2 uh, coming out. Uh, what's the subtitles? Like the, dark, the Dark World, is the it? The Dark World, yes. Mm. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I liked Thor a lot more than you, but I, I kind of enjoyed it more as a comedy than an action film. 
It's not uh, a comedy. Um, as um, and and also as a fan of Dutch angles, there's a lot of Dutch angles in that film. But I I I enjoyed Thor a, a fair bit, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how the second one works out. And I do like um, Chris Hemsworth. I think he's very uh, he's got a very strong sort of screen presence. I, I'm pretty. I'm not really that bothered about Thor. Is is Branagh doing this one again? No, it's not him. It's um, it's uh, someone else has taken over because he he left to direct um, Jack Ryan. The um, oh, is he doing that? Yes, the the reboot of the series starring uh, Chris Pine. Um, right. Interesting uh, choice of director for Thor t- uh, two is uh, Alan Taylor, who isn't a big name to uh in terms of film but in terms of television he is hbo's go-to guy He's i thought that was uh tim van patten uh, they're between the two of them they've directed uh. a lot they direct, he directed like loads of episodes of game of throne boardwalk empire bored to death um nurse jackie's done episodes mad men he's done a fair few episodes of um sopranos a, a fair few mm. rome lost you know he's deadwood carnival he's basically been attached to most of the sort of big uh, acclaimed TV shows of the last decade, so he's a he's a dab hand when it comes to directing. I hope that means that it'll only be an hour long as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's known for his brevity. <laughs> yeah, um, we've also got uh, the Man of Steel, which is for those of you who don't know, it's about Superman, and let's just uh, put you in not Stalin. No, absolutely not. No, and it's not like a kind of sequel to the Iron Lady either. <laughs> it's like, but Man of Steel is about a character called Superman. Superman is an alien from the planet Krypton who wears pants on the outside of his trousers, wears a cape, and flies around shooting shit with his X-ray eyes and uh, flying around and, and kind of like breathing cold ice on things to freeze them. He's a bit of a silly character. I think he comes out of comics, doesn't he? And they've done a film about him which is really, really serious. Like, Terence Malick has directed it. It looks like it's been very well shot and it looks interesting, but also at the same time you think that's not what superhero is, what Superman is. You know, if you look at the the Richard Donner and Richard Lester films, um, the first two Superman films from the 1978 and 1980, they're fun and camp, you know. Mm. They're they're well made. They're well put together. They look really good for for the time. The special effects were top notch, mm-hmm. but they are they're very light hearted comic romps essentially. Um, yeah. Kind of went a little too far when they threw Rich Pryor into the mix, but yeah. um, they're they're not deadly serious. Um, and I think the reason one of the reasons Superman Returns didn't kind of connect with audiences was that when you try and treat a character like that with such kind of um, seriousness if you really emphasise the whole Jesus metaphor thing which is obviously a big part of it didn't get uh, it um, then it look, starts to look funny but in a, in a ridiculous way instead of a serious way and I think that uh, everything Zack Snyder has done up until this point um, has demonstrated that he's not got a very light touch he's very leaden yeah, this is the uh, the kicker, isn't it? That Zack Snyder is directing it. No matter how serious he's going to be, it's still going to be Zack Snyder directing it. Um, although, uh, what's his fight face? Uh, Jonathan Nolan has produced it. Uh, Christopher Nolan. I think. Oh, John- I think they're both involved somewhere. Oh right, so the Nolans are involved. Yeah. Okay. Fair play. Um, Colleen's so- going to play his mum. 
Yeah, but, uh, West Ham midfielder Ian is going to. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do. Um, I'm just out of Nolan's. Um, moving on, uh, we've got a sequel to one of last year's biggest and uh, perhaps unexpected hits. Uh, we've got the second Hunger Games film coming out, Catching Fire. It's called, and I'm in a prime position to talk about this, Ed. As over Christmas, I have read all three books. Well, I'm almost finished the third one. Um, and I would like to report uh, that they are great books for teenagers and simple adults. Yes, I think that's probably about right. I think they uh, they they kind of handle sort of big concepts about society and revolution in a way that's very very accessible, but mm-hmm. very much aimed at a certain audience. Yeah. Um, I think that, and that's why I think they've connected, and I think that that's why they like they um convert so well into films is mm-hmm. because they're very simple stories but with this kind of big sort of expansive world that they can kind of be dropped into so we've got a change of director we've got uh i can't remember his name but he directed uh, constantine and uh, i am legend is that is that the same guy it is yes um, uh, his name escapes me it's lawrence something yeah, Lawrence something is uh, directing this film, uh, which means it should have better action than the first one, but maybe not have quite the focus on character, maybe. That yeah, was, I think that well, would that be... a proper filmmaker gives to... Oh, uh, Francis, to Francis Lawrence. Francis Lawrence, yes. But Gary Ross directed the last one, who did Pleasantville, which is a lovely film from the kind of late 90s. Um, and his focus for the Hunger Games first film was very much... Uh, character and story and the action perhaps not suffered but it probably wasn't quite as good uh, so we're, we're probably going to get an inverse of that aren't we with uh, Mr Lawrence yeah I mean like if he he's someone who's very technically adept I think you know like the films he's made are all very well put together but the they tend to suffer a bit in characterization and writing because I, I think he's probably one of those people who adheres very close to scripts and mm-hmm. doesn't kind of look at it and think maybe that could be better I think it's just kind of like well this go, bit, get, bit goes here these people say these words go um, mm. and I think that that I think if you can make the action better it'll probably make Catching Fire still watchable uh, and with a sort of solid story even though it does retread a lot of the same material that the first one does yeah just um, in a jungle rather than a forest yeah um and that will probably annoy a lot of people who are coming to it without reading the books and only see the films mm. which I imagine there are a lot of people because not that many people read books these days um, no, stupid people um, and uh, they'll probably uh, just go in and think wait that's the same film but different but only ever so slightly but mm. then obviously it sets up the third book which is massively different in a lot of ways and expan- um, a bit more expansive in terms of the world and everything. So, yeah, it kind of makes you. It kind of makes it a shame that the, the trend in Hollywood these days is splitting films up. Because if they could just combine Catching Fire and Mockingjay into a single book, into a single film, I think mm. it'd probably be a pretty solid uh, way. Like if they just got all of the Hunger Games stuff out of the way at the start, yeah, and then just went straight to it. Otherwise, but essentially, what you've got to do now is sit through. Hunger Games twice, essentially, and yeah. then a, what, a single story, a single third story, split up into two films, mm. which uh, I don't think is going to benefit the series as a whole. But I'm, I imagine that the second one will probably do stupid amounts of money because obviously the first one opened huge and ended up making like over four hundred million dollars. 
yeah very few films uh in in recent times to manage that um and so i think it will probably be a bigger film than iron man 3 but i think it might be very very close mm. um we've got a couple of uh uh, big sequels coming up uh, when I say big sequels not in terms of uh, my excitement about them or even uh, the amount of money they cost but just the sheer number uh, that they are we've got Fast and the Furious 6 and we've got Die Hard is it 5? yes A Good Day to Die Hard yes great well brilliant um, <laughs> I'm glad they're thinking of witty titles that are just puns that of phrases that involve the word die um, those two uh, you know they're just going through the motions now aren't they you'd imagine by film 6 and 5 yeah I mean like well I've only seen Fast 5 I skipped the first 4 and I enjoyed that and apparently mm. that was the best of the bunch wow um, so it's it's the rare series that's got better it's as peaked, it's gone it's lock. peaked at 5 <laughs> um, so I don't know I, I think it is literally just because you add the rock if you add the rock to things it just instantly spices things up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because we can all smell what he's cooking. And um, I think that I'm, I've not got huge expectations for the sixth one, but uh, it will probably be pretty big based on the goodwill of the fifth one. Mm. And uh, it's kind of insane, really, because I remember the first Flat Fast and Furious was really successful. The second one was, like, huge, but everyone hated it. And the third mm. one really petered out. And I think everyone was just kind of like, well, yeah, it's kind of ended. And then suddenly it's become this sort of A-list franchise almost, kind of without anyone realising it. Mm. I think uh, it's just that they're like, they just keep making them and hoping that no one's noticing that it's the same film, just in a different location. Mm. Well, I think the last one apparently was different in that it was a, sort of every, all these characters coming together for a heist. Oh, uh, okay. And that they kind of brought in all these characters from all the other films, because apparently the the chronology of it is insanely uh, complicated uh, and several of the characters in it apparently died in previous films so it's a prequel but it's actually a sequel to a prequel because the fourth one was a prequel yeah that's a bit mind bending that yeah I think that the series might be being overseen by Charlie Kaufman at this point right okay we've got um, I don't, I don't want to say that uh, Pixar are in need of a hit um, but they've had a couple of duffers, I guess, even though they've been successful in, in, in financially and yeah. in some critical quarters. But uh, I don't really have an awful lot of faith in Monsters University. How do you feel about it? Uh, I'm more positive about it being a, sequ- a prequel rather than a sequel. Because mm-hmm. I wrote a big thing when Monsters Inc. was, released, re- uh, was re-released on 3D a few weeks back over here about um, how much I love the ending to Monsters Inc I think it's a really perfect and and lovely ending and one of the best endings Pixar have uh, done and I was thinking that a sequel would kind of ruin that I don't really want to see what happens beyond I don't want to see what happens like uh, beyond the ending of that film unless they turn it into like Toy Story 3 and make it really sad and be about how Boo grows up and leaves Mike uh, and Mike leaves um, Sully alone or whatever Mm. um Although that could be interesting in itself, um, but so the idea of them just basically going, we're not going to have, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to look at these characters when they were younger. Um, sounds like it could be quite fun, mm. but at the same time, just kind of make you think you're just kind of going to be retreading a lot of material from the first film, really. Um, but I think uh, Pixar tend to be better when. Uh, going for sort of comedy than for 
sort of Braith, which was trying to be sort of like a mixture of sort of broad, broad comedy and sort of this sort of complex mother-daughter relationship, and the two never kind of quite gelled to me. Um, so I think something like Monsters, Inc., which seems to be uh, less... Um, uh, ha less uh, pretentious is the wrong word, but something that has is um, a little more straightforward and just being like, this is going to be a buddy comedy with probably a bit of sentiment in there somewhere. Yeah, I think it's probably got a better chance of succeeding on those terms. Well, it's Pete Doctor's first film since Up, isn't it? Yeah, as well. That's obviously a, a reason to be excited because he's a he's a steady hand at this sort of thing. Right. Um, so, I mean, I watched the trailer today, and there doesn't really seem to be much effort to make the characters of Sully and Mike uh, younger. Mm. Uh, they they're basically just made uh, the blue one. Which one's the blue one? Uh, Sully. Sully. They've just made that, that character thinner, and the voice is the same, and Billy Crystal's voice is the same as Mike. D to be it fair, um, it, you know, Seth Rogen sounded the same since he was 17, so I think, you know, some... Uh, some some people are allowed to have really deep voices all their life. Uh, I, I mean, I'm less talking about whether their balls have dropped, um, <laughs> because for Mike, that is an issue. Um, yeah. But um, I'm more like the fact that the characters are supposed to be frat boys in this. Right. And they just, they, they're they just the same characters who just happen to be in a university from the looks of things. Yeah. I hope that it is good, because I do, I do really want uh, Pixar to kind of pull it around. I feel, I feel like every film they make, they're making under duress from Disney, <laughs> and they think, well, we're, we're making Monsters uh, University because if we don't do it, then Disney will do it, and it'll be mm. like Lady and the Tramp two. Yeah, I think. Also, I think that um, they they seem to be entering a situation where they're doing sort of commercial trade offs, and in, in a in a, a a way that makes sense, you know, they'll do a Cars two or a Monsters University, something where they have an established license and they can make toys from it. Mm. And then they'll do something like Brave, which aims for a little more. You know, for me and you, it didn't succeed, but it was something that was sort of trying. Mm. Um, and then their slate of films, I've got a film about the uh, Dios de la Muerte, the, the Day of the Dead. Mm. Um, they've got a film which has, no one knows anything about it, except that apparently it's set within the mind, which sounds mm. like it could be interesting. So I think they've got an interesting slate of films coming up. They've got a dinosaur one coming as well, haven't they? Yes, and everyone loves dinosaurs. Yes, every, well, everyone does. Uh, I've got um, a few just kind of tawdry sequels at the bottom. I've got Hangover 3. Does anyone really give a fuck about that? I mean, mm. I certainly don't. Uh, Red 2? Who ordered that? Yeah, that one's... The, the the first Red, it was kind of one of those films that did better than anyone expected. So I think they've just kind of gone, well, fuck, we should probably release another one then before people realise that it probably wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, they're rebooting uh, Riddick? I think it's the third film, so it's it's the sequel to Chronicles of Riddick, ten years right. later. Oh, okay. Um, but with way less money. Who 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 was who was clamouring for that? Just Vin Diesel, I think. Just Vin Diesel, yeah. He's well, yeah. Oh, he's in a far. Is he in Fast Six? Would he be yeah. in Fast Six? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we've got Kickass Two. Did you, I didn't like Kickass. Did you like Kickass? I didn't like Kickass much. No, not at all. Uh, uh, I, like, I like Nicolas Cage's Adam West impression, but obviously he's not going to be in that one because he died horribly spoiler. in Kick-Ass. Uh, yeah. Who cares? Um, <laughs> uh, so the fact that he's not going to be in it doesn't uh, doesn't bode well for me. Um, and then we've got, uh, what's this one I've got written down here? Hobbit 2. Uh, last time we spoke you hadn't seen Hobbit 1. Have no. you seen Hobbit 1 now? 
No, I haven't. I've just not had time. Um, you're, such, you're such a knobhead. I'm How sorry. am I supposed to talk to you about this if if you don't go and see the bloody films? Sorry, I'm, I'm going to try and watch it. I'm going to watch either that or not fade away this weekend. I'm sorry, right. which okay. I can well, probably not fade away because it's doing so badly that they'll probably take it away. Yeah. I don't even know what that film is, but I'd recommend it over The Hobbit. It's a daily um, chase of The Sopranos' debut. Oh, is it the the one about the band? The band in the 60s, yeah. Yeah, 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 with you. Um, all right, so that's kind of uh, the, the super... I've got... Uh, that's under my general heading, superhero sequels. There you go, so we've, <laughs> we've covered all those. Hobbit 2, we know what it's going to be like. It'll be like the other one, but with bits extra and more people. Um, and, you know, that'll be it. Um, so now I've got a kind of slightly more interesting blockbuster category over here on the right-hand side of my notepad. Uh, I'm starting with Alfonso Juaron's Gravity, a film I think was scheduled, or I thought it was going to come out at the end of last year. Um, I might have been mistaken, but it's um, a, a kind of intellectual sci-fi film, and uh, Alfonso Cuaron, last time he did an intellectual kind of sci-fi film, was uh, Children of Men. I think that was actually the last film he actually made full stop, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the last feature. I think he did a documentary um, that related to uh, Children of Men around about the same time, sort of investigating sort of themes of it. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, since then. I think he's only done. He did a short. He did a, a short in Paris Jetem. Uh, right. And, uh, but that's that's been more or less it. He's been sort of beavering away on this film, and um, uh, it's it's kind of come together a few times and then fallen apart. Particularly with sort of lead actors leaving it. I think at one point Charlize Theron was meant to be the the main actor, and then she had to drop out because that it was running on too long. And and that now it's um, Sandra Bullock, who I like. Uh, I think she could. And um, Vin Diesel. No, not Vin Diesel. Not in this oh. one. Uh, it's uh, George Clooney is the. Oh uh, right. Yeah. He's capable, George Clooney. Yeah, he's not bad, uh, and it's it's one that I think has been slated for release for at least two or three years now. I think that the earliest it was people were thinking it would come out would be two thousand ten, two thousand and eleven. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's one of those ones where suddenly it's uh, kind of going to actually be coming out, uh, and it's very very exciting. You know, uh, Alfonso Cuarón's uh, sort of a mercurial talent who's proven himself adept at pretty much anything he turns his hand to, really. Um, yeah, and I think uh, it, it's been so long since he's put out a film that I'm just really, really excited to to see what he has to offer. Mm. Yeah, me too. And it's we've not had a trailer for that yet. It's very much still kind of under wraps. Uh, much like the next film uh, we talk about, which is one I'm pretty excited about actually for a blockbuster. Um, I'm mildly indifferent about it. Uh, that's my excitement for blockbusters. I'm joking. I am actually looking forward to Elysium. The uh, Neil Blomkamp film, for which we've had teasers, but no trailer. And the teasers have taken the form of kind of adverts for corporations that are in the film, but not actually any footage of the film is out yet. Am I right? Yeah, that's correct. They haven't released a, a, an official trailer for it as well yet. Um, no. I think some parts of it were shown at Comic-Con this year, or last year. Um, right. And that there were sort of details released about it, you know, talking about how Matt Damon plays this guy who's sort of... It's, it's uh, a film in which uh, the very rich have basically abandoned Earth and they've moved to another planet uh, which they call Elysium. Uh, and uh, Matt Damon's one of these sort of government workers who's who's uh, stuck on Earth, sort of doing cleanup. He gets exposed to something that's going to. Oh, he might be a criminal actually, and he gets exposed to something that uh, is going to kill him in sort of sort of uh, less than a week. 
Mm. But in order to get uh, treatment, he would need to go to Elysium, and obviously it's going to be stupid expensive, so he has to go start uh, working out how he's going to sort of get money. Uh, And it sounds really, really fascinating. Um, I think, again, uh, you know, um, Neil Blomkamp had sort of a social uh, comment thing going on in, in District 9 with the whole sort of uh, allusions to apartheid and, and stuff like that. He seems like someone who's got a ve- who's very interested in making sci-fi that has some reflection of the real world in it. And I think that the sort of disparity between the rich and the wealthy here obviously has some sort of real-life uh, analogues uh, going mm. on behind it. And I am really looking forward to seeing how that happens. But mainly I'm just looking forward to seeing what he does with sort of a, a, a great uh, sort of star and actor in Matt Damon and, uh, you know, a big budget and the opportunity to do whatever the hell he likes. Yeah, I think that that's definitely one that's going to be worth looking forward to. Do you know when it's due? Uh, summer, I'm not sure exactly when. I'm just going to consult my list. August. August, right, second, okay. Second yeah. week of August. Right, right, brace yourself, folks, that'll be good. Um, here's, here's an interesting one. Um, World War Z, uh, Ed. Mm. Uh, a book I've read... Um, I just realised I roamed Ed, Zed, and Red there. It wasn't intentional, but you know, like I'll Gil's, go with it. You like Gil Scott Heron? Yeah, he used to play for Celtic. Um, that's true, he did. No, his dad did. His dad true. did. His dad, yeah. Uh, World War Z is Book of Red, and um, it's pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of the zombie genre, but I enjoyed World War Z. I thought it was quite interesting, quite cool, an interesting way to do it. Uh, they bought the film rights. Um, a lot of interesting people involved in it. Um, they made the film. Whilst they were making the film, had a lot of problems. Uh, delayed shoot. I think it was already supposed to be out uh, already. Um, a lot of problems happened. I watched the trailer for it today. Bears absolutely no relation to the film whatsoever. Uh, even to the point where they're not really actually zombies. Um, but the film that it has been made out of uh, World War Z looks kind of cool. It does, yeah. I mean... I think it's one of those problems where they've they've deviated so far from the film, from the book, that they'll probably end up angering fans regardless of how it turns out. Mm. So it might be it might end up just kind of turning off the audience that you know you, the reason you adapt a book is because there's an audience for it and you want the audience to come and see the film, but they might end up getting too annoyed and turned off by it. Mm. But um, hopefully that won't happen if it turns out to be good and it does look sort of really kinetic and uh and um really kind of spectacular um mm. hopefully it will actually be sort of good enough to stand on its own right separate from the book because i think the book i always thought the book would work better as sort of a tv series like yeah. a, a mock documentary tv series because obviously the book is told um as a sort of a report by someone working for the UN reporting on um, a zombie apocalypse that has happened, mm, and, and is and is over, and we're we're talking about we're talking to the survivors from all around the world about their experiences. Uh, it's called an oral history of the zombie war, wasn't it? That's kind of what the book was subtitled, I guess. Yeah, so I think a, a faithful version of that was always going to work better on TV, where you could do, say, an episode on each person or to. Um, sort of interweave all the different stories. Yeah, so I'm I I am I'm quite hopeful for that. It does look pretty pretty cool. Um, I've got Oblivion written down here. Um, that's a Tom Cruise thing, isn't it? Yeah, Tom Cruise, uh, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who uh, directed the uh, Tron Legacy. 
Yep. Um, well, so we one of your directors to watch that you pointed out in the director's I, episode. Yes, I did, mainly because uh, I thought it was just... Because basically, Tron Legacy is the most expensive debut of all time. Because mm-hmm. Joseph Kaczynski hadn't made a feature film before and he somehow managed to convince Disney to sort of pony up $170 million to, to make a sequel to Tron. And whilst the film's not that interesting sort of from a, a storytelling point of view, it is visually uh, pretty stunning mm. uh, and really interesting and, and, and works as a sort of an hour and a half, two hour long Daft Punk video. Um, yeah. And I think that with a better worked out script, he could probably deliver something pretty spectacular. I watched the trailer for Oblivion, which finds uh, Tom Cruise playing a guy who sort of works for a company. Um, he's... Uh, investigating sort of areas of earth that have been devastated by some sort of war that happened in the past he winds up being taken hostage or, or being held by sort of these survivors who live underground who are human um, which he didn't seem to have any knowledge of and there's a sort of an idea that there's probably some big conspiracy as to why uh, they're being sort of kept hidden and why they're sort of being killed by the company that he works for and mm. uh, it does look visually like really interesting uh, like the design in it doesn't really uh, his uh, sort of ship that he uses to travel around is this sort of weird pod pod device that I've never really seen anything uh, like in a sort of a sci-fi film before. The world of it looks quite fascinating, and I think uh, if the if the script's good uh, or if the story is kind of compelling, it could be a really really cool, fun sci-fi romp. Um, are Daft Punk doing the soundtrack? I do not believe so. Oh, for shame. Uh, Next one I've got written down is a bit of a reboot from, uh, I don't know when the last time it was done, probably like the 20s or something, Uh, Lone Ranger. Uh, We've got uh, Gore Verbinski and uh, Johnny Depp teaming up for the Lone Ranger. Uh, The last time they teamed up was uh, Rango, which I loved. And before that, uh, some films about pirates. I can't really remember too much about them. Um, I've blanked them out that much, is, is clear. Um, but uh, what do we know about the Lone Ranger other than the fact that Johnny Depp seems to have a crow on his head uh, what we know about it is that it's been a very troubled production that they had to shut down shooting very early on because they were going wildly over budget uh, and they had to um, cut a load of stuff out that uh, Gore Vavinsky wanted to do which included uh, supernatural uh, elements including werewolves which apparently aren't in it now which is a shame because werewolves sell tickets, you know, they do. and all that, mm-hmm. um, and they have hair like Fabio. Yeah, um, and uh, I think uh, it's it's kind of struggled a lot um, m- budget wise. Thing it was still went massively over budget, even when they cut out all the stuff that was going to cost a lot. And judging from the trailer, it looks relentlessly serious. Does it? Um, yeah, like more so than uh, I mean. There's some. Uh, looks like there's some sort of business uh, with uh, Johnny Depp kind of being Tonto, uh, where he's kind of doing sort of that sort of deadpan thing he does. Mm. Um, but regard mainly, it looks like you know they're going like this is a really serious western, and we're going to treat this character really seriously, which um, doesn't really suit something that started as like a pulp character on the radio and uh, and all that, and is meant to be the granddad or great uncle of the green lantern uh, no no the green hornet green hornet I was going to say the green lantern that would be weird mm-hmm. uh, um got a couple of films now that are um takes on um 
I, don't, I suppose kind of like uh, old fairy tales. Um, the first one being Jack the Giant Slayer, which um, has had an, another film with a very troubled production. It's been through like the, it's done a John Carter and changed his name several times. Um, I watched the trailer for this. Uh, it's Brian Singer, director of Usual Suspects, um, One Trick Pony. I didn't say that. Um, and uh, written by Christopher McQuarrie. It's got Ewan McGregor in it. It's got Ian McShane in it, most importantly, because uh, no bad film has ever been made with Ian McShane <laughs> in. Um, and it looks fucking shit. Yeah, it does. I mean, the, I remember the trailer for that debuted probably over a year ago when it had the original release date. Cause it was meant to come out last year sometime and I think it was uh, taken away from retooling possibly for a, a 3D overfit or whatever mm. and um, yeah it just looks so shoddy and like just CGI overload um, and the, these kind of like mo- uh, revamped fairy tale things that there's such one sort of one note ideas yeah, uh, which is just kind of like let's take something that everyone knows and then sort of maybe try and make it super dark or, you know, make it sort of postmodern or something, which also is happening with um, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. Hey, that's uh, that's next on my fucking list. I, yeah. Like, they've, they've done that. When I first heard about that, because let's be honest, it's got Will Ferrell and Adam McKay attached to it as producers. Mm. So when I heard that bit of information and the fact that they're doing Hansel and Gretel film uh, with Jeremy Renner and Jeremy Arton, and I thought... I reckon, and it was directed by the guy who did uh, Dead Snow, that zombie film, the Norwegian zombie film, wherever it was. I, I didn't see it, but, you know, it's already amusing just as a concept. I thought, yeah, this could be fun. And I watched the trailer today, and holy fucking shit, what happened? I know, it's... Uh, I really have no idea what's what's happened with that film. It just looks uh, bizarre. Like, completely misjudged in sort of tone and look. Obviously... We can't judge it entirely until we actually see it. But even so, you know, you look at it and you think, my lord, who on earth thought that the two characters that really needed to be updated were Hansel and Gretel? Oh, I feel really, like, terrible having actually just seen the trailer. Uh, In the same way that kind of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter made me feel, that I heard that idea and I thought, oh, I'll tell you what, that'd be great. Watch the film, fuck off, horrible. Yeah, I think um, it's reminding me a lot in a very bad way of the Brothers Grimm, the uh, Terry Gilliam. Oh, that thing. was bad. That was really bad. Yeah, that was that was just a, it was the same essential concept tried ten years ago and it didn't work with uh, it didn't work then and I kind of don't feel it's going to work now. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose people got short memories. You can reboot Spider Man ten ten years later, um, but no, good God. Yeah, bad things. Bad things. Uh, is there any other before we move on and start talking about like proper films? Um, is there anything you want to get off your chest with regards to blockbusters that we've missed? Uh, I think there's going to be. Uh, it's going to be interesting this year because there aren't, with the exception of like the the Hunger Games and Iron Man. There's not really a huge number of sort of out and out guaranteed smashes. Unlike this year, where there were like four or five films that you could point to and say they'll probably do really well, uh, I think this year finds sort of Hollywood trying to scrabble for for new stuff that they can turn into co- into franchises mm. or um, sort of stuff they can use to kind of develop new new revenue. And um, uh, I think what you really start to see is uh, 
Hollywood are really trying to come up with something to replace the Twilight Saga because obviously that's wrapped up now and there's no more Twilight books to adapt. Mm. So they've got to try and so so uh, their studios have got to and also you know stuff like you know the Harry Potter series finished um, two years ago and there are these few there's these sort of really big guaranteed hits that just aren't going to be around anymore. Um, I think you can see that with there's a bunch of sort of adaptations of sort of teen novels about sort of gothic romance themes. Uh, there's one called uh, Beautiful Creatures, which is out in February, which is all about. Um, a young girl who's uh, can do magic and she's got sort of like 70 days before she will be chosen to be either good or bad which uh, looks like it's playing on the same sort of uh, sort of uh, romance themes except this time the uh, sort of supernatural figure is a girl instead of a boy mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of flipped around a little bit and it's sort of got magic and it's got Emma Thompson doing a from the trailer ridiculous southern accent so that that was one which you can look at, and that's clearly trying to be Twilight. The Host, the uh, adaptation of another Stephanie Meyer book starring Swasi Ronan, has um, and directed by the Andrew Nichols who did um, Gattaca. Oh, Gattaca's um, a great film. Yeah, so I think this is his try way of trying to make a film that'll make money. Mm. Um, that one's obviously uh, playing into that idea, uh, and there's a film called uh, Mortal Instruments, which is about. Uh, people who are half uh, human, half angel fighting demons, which has sort of romance themes to it, although that one looks like it's more sort of pure fantasy sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so, uh, and those are... The Mortal Instruments and Beautiful Creatures are both based on, I believe, a series of books, so they're kind of... It's the same as when um, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings first came out and studios just kept buying up sort of fantasy novels and yeah. they turned, turned out, you know, you got the Golden Compass as a result of that, you got... Uh, um, uh, oh, there, there were just a bunch that came out. The Spiderwick Chronicles was another one. Yeah. Um, uh, Lemony Snicket's a series of unfortunate events. These these series that are based on books that films that were based on sort of series of books, which then never transpired into actual series. Mm. So I think we might see the same thing happen then. Just a load of dead franchises. Uh, we're returning to Oz with Oz the Great and Powerful, directed by Sam Raimi, which looks visually very impressive, but I'm not sure. Um, how that's going to turn out? That's going to fucking suck, man. That's going to be terrible. Okay, we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, later this month, there's a film that I'm kind of interested in uh, called uh, Movie Forty Three, which is a uh, a, a uh, portmanteau movie, uh, comedy movie. Uh, I he I heard it mentioned in the same breath as Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah, I think that's the 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 vibe they're going for. They've just handed it to a load of different directors to basically come up with little sketches to sort of throw together. Um, mm. In my head, that makes it sort of like dick and fart joke shit yeah. um, <laughs> And um, the, 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 there's a load of directors in it, but some of them that kind of caught my eye is uh, Elizabeth Banks, who's never directed anything before, but she seems lovely. Yeah, um, she is, yeah. Bob, o Bob Odenkirk, the great Bob Odenkirk. Love his uh, work. Directed and uh, written a segment. Brett Ratner, Oh, Griffin, Griffin, Griffin Dunn, star of uh, After Hours. Did you and, just try uh, and squeeze Brett Ratner past me by saying Griffin Dunn as quick as possible afterwards? I just felt Brett Ratner didn't need comment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the mere uttering of his name kind of says everything. Yeah. Um, uh, Griffin Dunn and James Gunn. Uh, yeah. James Gunn, the director of uh, Super and um, Slither. Mm. 
uh, and some of the segments look uh, terrible. There's one that's got um, that's been very heavily featured in the adverts, which has uh, Gerard Butler as a leprechaun who beats the living shit out of Sean Stop. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm laughing at this already. It sounds like the worst <laughs> film ever. And uh, I think that it, it sounds like it's going to be very variable, but there are enough really funny people in it mm. who uh, hopefully, hopefully it will be sort of it will be pretty good. But we'll have to wait and see what happens when the reviews come out. Before before we move on from uh, mainstream cinema, um, I'd like to uh, perform a service if we can to our many listeners. I feel like uh, we do have a responsibility as a public service broadcaster to do so, and in the mould of a concerned parent warning neighbours in the area of a paedophile who may have moved in. I would like to keep people posted on the activities of Michael Bay uh, in a little segment that I like to call Michael Bay Watch. So, Ed, please tell us, but how can we avoid Michael Bay this year? Well, they could uh, avoid seeing the movie Pain and Gain, which mm. is a, um, a a buddy comedy slash crime thriller that he's directed, starring Mark Wahlberg and uh, the Dwayne Johnson Rock, yeah. um, or however he wants to call himself these days, yeah. uh, as a couple of bodybuilders who kidnap a uh, sort of this uh, rich guy who, uh, played by uh, Tony Shalhoub. Um, right. And they kidnap him, get him to sign over a load of his property to them so they become rich in order to save the gym where Mark Wahlberg works. Uh, and then Ed Harris shows up and causes a load of shit for everyone. This sounds horrible, Ed. Uh, when's this out so people know not to go to the cinema or possibly kill themselves? Um, it's out in April and I'm going to possibly destroy our friendship by saying I am mildly interested in it. Mildly. I'm quietly judging you, Ed. Because the story is real, is based mm. on something that actually happened in the nineties. Well, Transformers was real, Ed, <laughs> um, and was ba- is, uh, based on a, a story that really happened in in Miami in the mid nineties, and which is uh, crazy and could make for a very good movie if done well. Mm. Michael Bay doesn't have the best track record for doing things well. You're right. But it's the sort of story that doesn't allow for a lot of his kind of stupidity. Mm. I mean, there's not a huge amount of room for. Um, massive explosions or literally just sneak one explosion into the trailer so he's not entirely outside of his comfort zone did in the trailer did anything go uh i think the rock does that at one point oh um, well but he's uh, like is michael bay doing speedboat uh, is michael bay doing anything else um that we should know about um just so the listeners at home can be fully prepared in case of a, a bayhem breaking out well, Bayham is uh, something that everyone should be concerned about. Uh, mm. He has direct. He has produced a load of films because that's what he does. He, yes, uh, produces all sorts of things. He's just a film called The Purge, which mm. is uh, about bulimia. No, uh. Uh, it's a film in which the U.S. government begins to allow twelve-hour periods of time in which all illegal activity is legal. Oh, um, for fuck off! In order to. Uh, counterbalance the country's overcrowded prisons. Brilliant. Um, which uh, sounds terrible. Mm. Um, directed by a guy called James DeMonaco. What's mm. he done in the past? Yeah, nothing. He wrote several episodes of the short-lived 
Crash TV series based on the terrible film Crash. Uh, he what wrote, you mean? The, ra- the racism one, that one. The racism Not one. Not the fucking the... a hole in the leg one. No, which is great. Yeah. Um, he also wrote, and this is reason for everyone to be terrified, Jack. Oh, Francis Ford Coppola's finest film. Yes, the film I walked out of at the tender age of ten. Holy uh, shit. I very it was very very early on I was very discerning. The two films I'd walked out of by the age of ten were Jack and I'm just looking at the poster for it now, it looks awful. It's just a Jack, it just yeah, I should have known. Mm. I should have known not to be tri- tricked into going to watch Jack. Uh and the the other film I walked out on by that age was Stargate. Oh, I saw ah, oh, that's a great film. <laughs> What's your problem with Stargate? That's amazing. There was just a bit where they were eating alien food and it really made me feel sick, so I walked into another screen and watched Bambi. Oh, that's fair enough. I saw it in 1942. It was very weird. Yeah, uh, ahead of its time in many ways. Right, so we're done. So we now know uh, what Michael Bay is doing. Everyone at home, don't have nightmares. It's okay. Um, we're back into talking about some good old proper films now. Not anything exploding in these films. I don't think there'll be, uh, you know, no, no one will go and see these films uh, on might, the whole. There might be explosions of emotion. Yes, um, um, I doubt in this very first one. I think the big one, the big thing to report is the Coen Brothers about this year, uh, with an intriguing sounding film, uh, which is called Inside uh, Llewellyn Davis. Is the name of it? Yes, um, a film about uh, a young man kind of navigating the uh, music and poetry scene of uh, uh, of New York's um, East Village in uh, of Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village in yep. the nineteen sixties. Mm. Uh, that's more or less all anyone knows about it at this point. You know, not a lot has been released about it yet. You know, there's there's very little known except the basic premise. But based on what the Coens have done in the past um, and the sort of the period setting, the, the feeling I get is it it might be something akin to a serious man, but obviously not set in the Midwest in a sort of a, a Jewish community, but set in a a small community of its own sort of rules and hierarchies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'd hope for anyway and it sounds like one of their small odd ones which yeah um, it's got Justin Timberlake in it who um, I've often found to be a very likeable presence in films yes um, uh, very 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 funny um, whenever I've seen him on Saturday Night Live where he's kind of become like a, a Steve Martin you know someone who just kind of like shows up to be in it rather than ever actually being a cast member yeah yeah um so yeah, that should be pretty good. Uh, Prince Avalanche, did you know about this? Uh, David Gordon Green is returning to making proper films, having dicked about on Judd Apatow's uh, uh, kind of meal ticket for for a while, in to varying degrees of uh, success. I mean, uh, Pineapple Express was all right, but mm. Your Highness was uh, despicable. I think it's probably the only thing I can say about it. But he's returning. I don't really know anything about Prince Avalanche. Do you know anything about it? No, it's it, again like the only thing that's really known about it, or that I know about it and that I've seen about it is that it's him returning to something that's a bit more serious and and low budget, which you know uh, I think is great because the it, there was a time where and it may still be the case he might go back to doing like really big. Also, he did the Sitter as well with Jonah Hill. That was another oh, one. He did like Christ. three R-rated uh, comedies, which got progressively less and less uh, acclaimed. Um, I think. That, he may go back to doing that, but there was a time where, when, when he did Pineapple Express, I think there was this kind of sense, it's like, okay, he's directing sort of something that's going to be a bit more mainstream so he can get sort of money together and make some more of those little films that he likes to make. Um, and then 
he'll go back to doing the sort of smaller personal stuff and then he kind of got sidetracked by that for about four years mm. so I think seeing him do something that's a bit more small and personal uh, would be great because obviously you know you look at the stuff he did uh, you know all the real girls George Washington um, Undertow that sort of like that run when he first started yeah are um, are, are really sort of uh, wonderful um, American dramas you can see why for a while he was sort of being touted as the, the, the new Terence Malick or the, the sort of the saviour of American cinema of uh, independent American cinema so to kind of it'd be nice to see him get back to doing something like that yeah, defo. Um, a curious one now. Um, I've got a suspicion this is going to be uh, terrible in every sense, but there's something about it that's making me thoroughly intrigued by the whole affair, which is uh, Spike Lee has remade Old Boy. Yeah, I mean it's a good, it's a, it's an interesting year for Park Chan Wook because he's got his American debut out in a few, in a few weeks, or in yeah. a month or two. Stoke, Stoker, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but so uh, he's got that, and he's also got the American remake of uh, certainly his most um, well-known and, and renowned film. I'm, I, it's not my favourite of his films, but I, I do I do like Old Boy a lot. And uh, it was one of those films that kind of came from nowhere and sort of became a world cinema sort of a sensation amongst sort of fans of world cinema. I think probably made a lot of people fans of world cinema really because it was one of these sort of really visceral films, unlike anything anyone had ever seen. It kind of started um, that um, Korean boom, didn't it? Uh, it certainly yeah. in terms of recognition uh, in the West, I guess. There was there, that film and then obviously the Vengeance films um, and The Host and Mother and all these other kind of films and Save the Green Planet. and uh, Those films probably wouldn't have had the interest in them had uh, Old Boy not crossed over so well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot. Some of those films like predated Old Boy, but I don't think they were. They had because uh, obviously Park Chan Wook had been around for a little while, and uh, the Old Boy was the second of the Vengeance films that he made. Um, but you know, people like uh, Bong Joon Ho and uh, um, uh, Kim Ji Woon, who also both have American or, or English language debuts coming out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they were all kind of doing these really small, interesting strange uh, films that uh, all kind of after Old Boy kind of kicked the door in or you know smashed smashed through people's faces with a hammer um, yeah in one long take yeah it um, kind of opened the door for all of these other films that either had already been released in Korea to kind of suddenly get released or like for new Korean films for people to kind of like really pay attention to them and help them get sort of bigger uh, bigger release mm. um so I think the the problem with Old Boy is that you know the original Old Boy was something that people really hadn't seen before, and mm. now it's being remade. Uh, yeah, with Josh Brolin and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, I believe, is in this, um, and they've ch- they've apparently changed the ending, which is the thing I didn't like in the in Old Boy, because um, I thought I thought there was a natural ending to it that was really bad, <laughs> really mm-hmm. like, oh, God. And then they did an extra little bit on the end, which, having read about the new old boy, isn't in the original source material. They added that for the film. Um, so that gives it a little note in my favour, because I didn't... I, re- I loved old boy, I thought it was great, but that I thought it was just a little bit too far at the end. <laughs> when I say too far, <laughs> that that film pretty goes... That goes pretty fucking far. Um yeah. It makes me wonder if they'll soften um, one aspect of the plot, which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it, but which I think uh, 
everyone who's seen the film knows, and it mm. does enter some very queasy and uncomfortable territory. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, and I wonder if Josh Brolin will eat a live octopus. No, they'll Americanize it. He'll have to eat a live possum or something. I think you know it could be interesting. I mean, Spike Lee's a very interesting uh, director. He's a very hit or miss. Um, That's but, a know, fucking when... understatement and a half. <laughs> when he when he hits, you know, he knocks it out of the park. Mm. When he misses, uh, he smacks himself in the face with a bat. Um, yes, that's, repeatedly. The, that's kind of the, uh, the 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 two extremes of his career, really. Um, mm. So he's he's rarely someone who ends up doing something mediocre. Yeah. Um, so I, I, hopefully this could end up being end up something like you know Inside Man, you know, sort of a really solid mainstream entertainment that has sort of some of his sort of weirdness, his own personal touches around the edges, mm. um, or at the very least will be just something that you can sit and watch in sort of stunned horror. But at the same time, kind of thinking, you know, well, I never thought I'd see this. Yeah. Um, I've got uh, Spring Breakers down on my list. Uh, Harmony Kareen is uh, following up um, Trash Humpers, a film which I found uh, truly reprehensible. Um, and uh, I can I can appreciate why he did Trash Humpers. And in some way, I can kind of say, okay, but in every other way, he was laughing in my face for watching it, and it was the least fun 70 minutes I've ever had, I think. Um, but Spring Breakers sounds interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, um, he's, a, he's a very strange man, is Harmony Corinne. Um, mm. And I, I like the idea of him doing something that's sort of a really R-rated uh, comedy, although I'm not sure what constitutes comedy in, in his world. Mm. Um, with sort of these really... And, and kind of taking these people who are sort of famous for being in sort of squeaky clean uh, franchise films or whatever, uh, or um, stuff that is not associated with being edgy and sort of grimy in the way that a lot of his stuff is. Yeah. And uh, kind of really pushing it. Uh, it sounds like it could be could be interesting, but as you say, his um, yeah his his uh, back catalogue is. Uh, makes it an either-or proposition of being really interesting or just kind of horrifying. Mm. Kind of very abrasive filmmaker, isn't he, Harmony Corinne? Yeah, which again is what makes him interesting, but um, also can make it really, really uh, horrifying to sit through. Uh, We've got Devil's Knot coming up, which is the... Uh, the story of the West Memphis Three, which we've already had in three documentaries by Berlin Durensonovsky. We had another documentary called West of Memphis last year, and now we're getting a dramatization starring Colin Firth. Um, is this uh, unnecessary, or considering the fact that Atom Egu, Egu, how do you say his name? Atom Egian? Atom Egian? Him. Atom. Well, yeah. Whoever that guy is, he's doing it. Is that does that make it interesting? And we can't even say his fucking name. Uh, yeah, his uh, he's um, he's not directed a great film in a while, has that man? But yeah. um, his um, he's you know he is capable of the greatness. Um, the Sweet Hereafter, I think, is one of the most uh, stunning uh, films I've ever seen. I think that's that's an amazing piece of work. Um, and I think he, with the right sort of script uh he can be amazing 
I think that the story of the West Memphis Three is something that's uh, sort of prime for cinema, as we've seen from the, the fact that four documentaries have been made about it. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of seem strange that they're going to turn it into sort of a fiction, one a, a dramatic entertainment when the documentaries are pretty dramatic to begin with. Yeah, but then, yeah, but yeah. then again, you you put marketable stars in it and people watch it, whereas. Mm. Um, the documentaries, I think, they obviously developed a pretty big uh, audience and, you know, really had an impact on the, the case of those uh, free and lucky men. But mm. um, they're probably not as popular as a film that stars Reese Witherspoon. No, yeah. I did. I, I, I neglected to mention she was in it. I'm hoping it's going to be like Legally Blonde, but with murder. Yeah, with, yeah. I think that would be the perfect... Uh, uh, opportunity to revamp the Legally Blonde franchise where she steps into the defence of three boys charged of uh, satanic ritual killing. Yeah, that was really what was missing from the first two. Yeah. <laughs> um, Richard Aoadi is back with the double and um, I read a little bit somewhere that he is taking the step up from adapting Joe Dunthorne who, uh, into adapting Dostoevsky. Yeah, uh, he's he doesn't want for ambition, does he? <laughs> He does not uh, know, um, but it seems like a a natural fit for him. Uh, it's uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg as a man who comes to work one day to discover that there's a man who looks exactly like him, um, played by Michael Sarah. Not really, Yay! But, uh, but, <laughs> but that'd be great if that's what they'd done. Um, um, and uh, discovers that the man uh, is exactly like him, except better. And like Michael be Sarah. <laughs> um, makes him go sort of slightly deranged and mad uh, mm. and I think um, it's something that could really suit Richard Aoadi's uh, sense of humour, he's very very uh, wry and deadpan mm-hmm. and I think that, that situation offers that sort of, a lot of opportunity for that sort of thing and uh, Jesse Eisenberg is exactly the sort of nebbishy, nervous person who would really really suit uh, a story about someone who discovers someone exactly like him but better. Um, yeah, well, that's one to look at, uh, look forward to. See if uh, Iowadi can uh, get that difficult second film out of the way. Um, next one, interesting got... because on. obviously, obviously, Submarine was a film that owed a lot to kind of French New Wave, and he kind of took a lot of. He seemed to graft the influences onto the material. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if he kind of changes up for this one and kind of looks at the story and maybe tries something new with it, which I'd, I'd like to think he will do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got next on my list um, a bit of a reteaming of a, of a dream combo from 2011 um, when they did the film Drive. You've got Nicholas Winding Refn and Ryan Gosling are reteaming for a. Thailand set gangster film called Only God Forgives um, I really love Drive and um, I've got a lot of hopes pinned on this one yeah I mean like uh, Nicholas Wayne reference uh, one of these he's someone who's kind of quietly built a, a fascinating body of work uh, he's very good at investigating sort of men in very extreme masculine situations and ideas of masculinity you can see that in, in Drive where um Gosling's character kind of has to become um, a real hero and a real human being, mm. and um, 
uh, in this kind of like uh, 80s kind of infused sort of synth landscape of, of crooks and criminals and um, you know you see that also in Bronson um, which is, I think is still my favourite of, of his films I really love Bronson I think mm. uh, Tom Hardy's performance in that is, is uh, makes me disappointed in everything he's done since it's quite, um, some, it's quite something isn't it his performance in Bronson yeah I just remember watching uh, it with um, my uh, grandma the, no with my oh. flatmate at the time and we were both laughing a lot throughout it because it is a funny film but also afterwards both saying more or less yeah I really liked it but I also wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I, just, I, was aff- I just didn't want to spend any more time with this utter psychopath yeah um, but that's. Uh, I think uh, he's on a he's on a great run of form at the moment. Uh, him and Gosling seem to be really simpatico, from what I've heard of. You know, when they talked about um, when they first met to discuss how they were going to be working on Drive, and they had a meeting which didn't really go well because uh, because Winding Refn had a cold and he was really kind of untalkative, and then he needed to get somewhere. So Ryan Gosling gave him a lift somewhere, um, and basically they connected over a pop song or something that was on the radio. And then, uh, ever since then, they've kind of seemed to be on the same page. I think it's that same sort of idea of them sort of almost being like one person in two bodies kind of continues with uh, Only God Forgives, which has the best title. That's a great title. Um, I think that could be really, really cool. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be violent and cool. Yeah, yeah, in the best possible way. Um, next on my list is uh, The Nymphomaniac. We have uh, Lars von Trier assembling a cast which includes Uma Thurman, Christian Slater, Shia LaBeouf, some other people, and promising us that we're going to see them fucking on film. Now, what could be better than that? Uh, quite possibly nothing. Um, or, <laughs> or anything. anything. I, think, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's going to be... Um, uh, that's going to be a very interesting one. I'm, uh, Lars von Trier is one of these people whose films I... I I dread and anticipate in equal measure because mm. um, he's a he's someone who uh, delivers films that I either absolutely adore, like um, Antichrist and Melancholia and um, Dogville, um, or you know the the Five Obstructions, you know stuff that's really fascinating and, and really mm. exciting. And then he also does stuff like Breaking the Waves or The Idiots, which I f- can't fucking stand. Mm. Um, and you know, but but his all of those films always get a reaction from me. I've never been bored watching a, a Lars von Trier film. Mm. Uh, I've been angry, or, yep. or I've been—I've just been kind of uh, wrapped. And those are the kind of the only two uh, modes that he seems to elicit in pretty much anyone. Really, I think there's there's hardly anyone that would kind of describe him as a mediocre talent. No, yeah. Um, they do—they describe him as a genius or a harlot or a charlatan um, mm. or a harlot. Maybe he's a harlot. Um, so I think uh, something like this probably could be uh, could be really amazing or really awful. I'm hoping for amazing myself, but we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> we'll, we'll, maybe we should do a live blog of us watching that, feeling comfortable. <laughs> um, next on my list is uh, we've got a film called Labor Day, which is the new film from Ivan Reitman and... As we discussed in the Best of 2012 podcast, I've been a little bit kind of uh, slow to get on board with... Um, oh, God, I said Ivan Reitman, didn't I? I meant Jason yeah. Reitman, who I watched Ghostbusters 2 today, and Jason Reitman's in it as a kid, fact. Um, 
But it is uh, Jason Reitman is someone I took a long time to get on board with, and um, I think I'm thoroughly on there now. And uh, this sounds interesting. It's got Kate Winslet in it, and some stuff happens. Do you know anything about it? Or have uh, I got to do all the bloody work? No, no. Uh, I believe I know what it's about. Uh, Kate Winslet plays a a mother um, and their young who's uh, driving with her young son when they pick up a hitchhiker. Oh, and uh, is it Rugger Hauer? Sadly not, no. Ah. Or, or Sean Bean. It's oh. neither of them. Um, and then it's kind of relates, relates their um, their story um, being told in flashback by sort of the son as a as a as an adult. Um, I don't really know a huge amount more because I like to be surprised by um, by Reitman's work. Um, but you know, as I'd like like you, I mean, I'm I was probably more on board with him than you were initially. But I thought Young Adult was great. It was, yeah. Um, I think uh, he's on a. He, if he can sort of match that, then I'll be more than happy with Labor Day. And obviously, Kate Winslet, she's uh, she rarely sets a foot wrong. Yeah. Um, I've got uh, the last film I've got on my list before uh, you can run down some that uh, you've kind of picked out before we get into our top ten. Is a fi- is a film called Monuments Men. Um, uh, I'm just going to read you the synopsis and then I'm just going to say who's in it right, the synopsis is according to um, IndieWire uh, in a race against time, a crew of art historians and museum creators unite to recover renowned works of art stolen by Nazis before Hitler destroys them, so that sounds already good, right and the cast is George Clooney Daniel Craig, Kate Blanchett, Matt Damon, Bill Murray, John Goodman, and Jean Dujardin. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of this film until today when we were researching for this podcast, and then I saw that it was directed by George Clooney, mm. and I was like, oh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't make, he doesn't direct films all that often. Yeah. Um, I wonder what it's about, and I started, started looking into it, and I thought, well, that sounds fantastic. It does. I mean, like, it's got an amazing cast. That story is has the potential to be uh, just like hugely exciting because you know who doesn't love museum curators? Um, no. But you know, and like, Nazis and Nazis. And I think that there's a yeah. I mean, like, Clooney. Clooney, to my mind, has only directed one really great film, which is Good Night and Good Luck. But he's yeah. he's a really good. He's a really good uh, craftsman. He's obviously a very charming screen presence, and I think he seems to have just. Assembled the best people. Mm. He's 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 at that. He's he's got the sort of clout that he just kind of he can sort of cherry pick all the best people for his films. And even if the films themselves don't perhaps don't wind up being that interesting, you know, there's always something good in them. I think it's because everyone everyone wants to fuck him, and that's why people come out for it. Yeah, just just come out for it, not for their own. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not just come out. Yeah, gay for pay, as they call it in the porn industry. <laughs> um, but yeah, Ides of March, it was okay, wasn't it? It wasn't mm. it, on paper. That film is amazing, but in yeah. practice, it was just it was just all right, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was um, the problem. There was the, of it was kind of adapting a play, which perhaps wasn't the most sort of cinematic mm. uh, of material. And he did he did well with it, but I think it just it just never really sort of rose above the material um unlike something like good night and good luck which was this kind of thing that was a mixture of amazing sort of craft because it's a beautiful looking film like terrific acting and just like a real passion for the subject 
Yeah. Which I think is something that's been lacking from um, his films since then. Because his first two films, obviously, uh, that and The Confessions of a Dangerous Mind are both films that kind of draw upon his interest in sort of the history of television because his dad was a, a TV producer in the, the 50s mm. and 60s and obviously he's got a sort of a, a vested interest in that uh, and then you know Leatherheads was a film that I believe he wanted to do with the Coens but they couldn't do it so he ended up directing it himself and you kind of got the feeling that it wasn't something that he was that interested in mm. and sort of similar with um with uh, the Eyes of March was just kind of like because he's a very sort of vocal in his politics he wanted to make a film that was political mm. and just ended up being quite dry so I think something that's got room to kind of uh, maybe play to his sort of strengths as, a, as someone who's really good with actors but also someone who's obviously got a past past form when it comes to directing stuff that's sort of historically based and really kind of quite sprightly mm. I think yeah. it can work I think that's coming out really late next year, so that's going to be one that they are pushing for Oscars. One would imagine. Yeah, um, I think it's out. It's out in December next year, so I think it's good. It's, it's in that prime Oscar spot. Yeah, we've got time to wait for it and also talk about it in next year's preview when it inevitably gets delayed uh, by a year. Um, what have you got left over, Red? Before we move on to the top ten, uh, one of the ones I just wanted to mention was uh, Great Gatsby. Which we talked about last year, uh, yeah. I think <laughs> yep. we, and we. I look forward to talking about next year. Yeah, uh, along, along, <laughs> alongside the Grandmaster, the One Car Y film, which, which never seems to get a release date sorted. Yeah, um, but I, you know, I think that one's. I'm still interested to see how that one turns out, even though I've not got the the highest hopes for it. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the film called The To Do List, which stars Aubrey Plaza. Uh, yep. It's a film that I mentioned to you in the past on this show uh, when I when it was under a different name. It was called The Hand. The Hand Job, yeah, a great great trailer, a brilliant red band trailer. I'd recommend looking at that. Yes, uh, which it does look uh, fantastic. But Audrey Plaza plays a girl who uh, is about to go to college. She's sexually inexperienced and thinks she needs to try sort of everything before she goes mm. so that she can be more worldly. Yeah, and uh, it looks it looks hilarious from the trailer. And you know, Aubrey Plaza, you, you and I are the, the heads of the Aubrey Plaza fan club you know we both really uh, love her and I really uh, am looking forward to seeing what she does in that mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't love her um, I just really really like her <laughs> you're, you're afraid of getting hurt I yeah I, I am yeah. Uh, there's a film called Saving Mr. Banks which I'm quite interested in seeing that's the film about uh, Walt Disney played by Tom Hanks uh, trying to make um, Mary Poppins. I love Mary Poppins. Uh, it was one of my favourite films as a kid. But it, it's really good. And I've, I've see, read a little bit into the making of it and about how it was a real effort by Walt Disney to try and convince the author to let him direct it, to let him uh, make, adapt it. I think um, it's the sort of thing that I think could be really interesting because it's a, technically a biopic or, or something about the life of Walt, Walt Disney, but it's focusing on just one particular aspect of it. Mm. Um, however, it is being made by Disney, so I kind of get a feeling it's going to be had geographic. But um, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that that one could be uh, pretty, pretty good. But we'll, we'll see how that one turns out. Uh, another Gosling film this year, uh, The Place Beyond the Pines. It's uh, he's reteaming with uh, Derek Kian France. Is that how you say his name? Uh, sure. The guy, um, the guy who we've been really harsh on directors' surnames today, um, but it was uh, the guy who directed Blue Valentine, right? Yes, so they've obviously got past form together. Um, this one uh, looks like it could be really good. Uh, Bri- uh, 
Brian Gosling um, plays a. <laughs> Don't know who that is. Uh, this is uh, his uh, non-union Mexican counterpart. Um, Brian, <laughs> Brian, Brian, that great Mexican name. <laughs> um, Ryan Gosling plays a sort of a, a stuntman or a guy who sort of takes part in county fairs as a, a motorcycle stuntman who uh, is kind of a drifter. He just kind of goes from place to place, discovers that he's uh, fathered a child and he realises that he needs to be there in his kid's life because his dad was never there for him. Unfortunately, he has no way of making money because he obviously just works at a carnival and there's no huge amount of money in it. So he turns to a life of crime as a bank robber because that kind of is the only thing that matches his skill set. Um, hang on, hang on. Um, is, is, isn't this the, the plot of Drive that you're saying? Um, Ryan Gosling as a stuntman who robs banks. Uh, yeah, and, but this time cost- he... This time right. he uses it. This time he uses a gun. It's a very clear difference. Oh, okay. um, and like Bradley Cooper plays the uh, cop who's kind of chasing him down, and the trailer makes it look really, really cool. I mean, mm. in terms of uh, Goslin twenty eleven reunion films, I'm still more interested in uh, Only God Forgives. Yeah, but uh, the Place Beyond the Pines um, does look. Pretty, pretty good, and you know, I thought that um, Blue Valentine was uh, was great and uh, uh, grueling mm. and uh, soul crushing in places. So oh, yeah. this looks this looks lighter. Uh, <laughs> anything else? To the wonder, the new Terrence Malick. I'm not sure how that will turn out. Um, it's, getting, <laughs> it's getting wildly mixed responses, but uh, I'm kind of hopeful. Uh, and then uh, two more: um, Blue Jasmine, the new Woody Allen film. Uh, is due for release sometime this year, unclear when. It's a film, all that's known about it so far is that it's set in San Francisco and that it features performances by Louis C.K. and Andrew Dice Clay, which Holy uh, shit. is um, strange. It's a strange parent. Well, Louis C.K. is less strange because mm. if you watch Louis, he's clearly watched um, a lot of Woody Allen films in his time. He's, it's obviously a very key creative touchstone for him. Mm. And um, Trance, the new film by Danny Boyle, um, in which uh, James McAvoy and uh, Vincent Cassell play art thieves who uh, work together until Vincent Cassell um, betrays him. And in the process of his betrayal, James McAvoy gets a bump on the head, suffers from uh, retrograde amnesia and forgets where the... um, where the the loot is buried, but also starts to forget a lot of different things in his life and starts to remember them over the course of the film. The trailer for it was released the other day. It looks sort of typical kinetic uh, Danny Boyle sort of style, uh, which I I like a lot. I really enjoy Danny Boyle's films. Um, And I think he's a a wonderful visual stylist. Um, And I mainly like it because I'm going to say it's tranche in the style of The Cake Boss. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins' uh, bizarre mm-hmm. comic creation. Um, so that's the main reason I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's just because in my head I'll just keep reading it. It's trench. Trench. Right, okay. So we have... Uh, that's just the overview of the year. Only took about an hour and a half, so fucking yeah, hell, we need to squeeze this top ten in. It's um, a hell of a fucking year, isn't it? It is, yeah. There's a lot going on. Um, obviously, this is every film we've mentioned, that's not the entire schedule of films released, but it certainly feels like it, because we haven't put <laughs> on for quite some time. So, Ed, are you ready to crack on with our top ten most anticipated films of the year? I am indeed, sir. Okay, let's hear that jingle. Top 10. Right, 
Okay, what we've done is we've picked five films each. We've made sure they don't cross over, and Ed is to go first with uh, a big blockbuster that's a sequel, and we didn't mention it earlier, but it is a massive film this year. What is it, Ed? Star Trek Into Darkness, or Star Trek 2, depending Star on Trek... how you want to call it. Well, hang on, isn't it Star Trek, like, 8? Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, but it's Star Trek... No, I think it'd be Star Trek... 12? 12. Yeah, the last one was 11. Right, so this okay, is Star yeah. Trek 12. Um, Slash 2. Yeah, so going by the usual convention that all even-numbered, uh, all odd-numbered Star Trek films are shit, I think we're in mm-hmm. for a good one, this one. Because the last one yeah. was uh, the last one was odd numbered and was pretty fun, so now it's going to be even better. But um, you know, I really liked J.J. Uh, Abrams' um, Star Trek, as did you, I believe. Yes, I, I did like it. It was a new film that had action in that I liked. There you go. <laughs> um, and this one uh, looks pretty spectacular. They've uh, brought in Benedict Cumberbatch as the villain. Can I just say, right, Benedict Cumberbatch is becoming ubiquitous, but did you ever watch that um, Eddie Izzard um, stand-up from years ago where he's talking about Ingelbert Humperdinck and yeah. how Ingelbert Humperdinck gets his name and he's going through all these like iterations of it. He's like Bingleback, Slembidak, uh, <laughs> and that's what Benedict Cumberbatch sounds like to me. <laughs> just sounds like a rejected name for Ingelbert Humperdinck. But sorry, Ed, go on. But a wonderful actor, even yeah. if his name sounds like a cast-off from a 60s crooner. Um, yeah, he's the he's the villain. He looks like he it looks like they're going with the typical um, sort of blockbuster progression, which is the first film establishes the heroes, the second film introduces sort of the charismatic uh, counterpart to them. So you know, sort of in the sort of Dark Knight Joker sort of vein, um, mm. introducing someone who can cause huge chaos. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to. That. I think J.J. Uh, Abrams is a is a really very, very capable uh, action director, uh, as he's demonstrated on Mission Impossible 3 and Star Trek. Uh, the whole cast of the Star Trek films that he's assembled is uh, is pretty solid. They're all really fun, engaging, lively performers. And I think uh, if they've got uh, even a fraction of the sort of the, the fun and energy of the first one, it will be uh, it'll still be one of the sort of the better sort of mainstream entertainments of the year. I think you're uh, right, Ed. I think that will be uh, fun to spend time with those characters again and, you know, see how that kind of world develops. Uh, although I did read today that he has been like kind of forced into releasing it into 3D, which he didn't want to do. Yeah, that's obviously um, a shame um, and sort of based on sort of commercial um, demands being put upon him. I don't think he's in the state of, uh, you know, someone like Christopher Nolan who can just say fuck off. Which is mm. essentially what he's been saying about 3D for for years now. Um, yeah. Whenever the the issue has been raised, he's always said, "No, it's 2D. I'll shoot it in IMAX, but I won't shoot it in uh, 3D. I won't shoot it digital." Because mm. if anyone says, "Well, why should we listen to you?" He just needs to go. Well, look at all the money. Yeah. <laughs> look at the pile of money that uh, we've made uh, together. JJ mm. um, Abrams, obviously a very successful guy, but he's not quite reached that level of success cinematically so we can't really tell them no, which is a shame. But mm. um, hopefully the uh, that that won't mar it. And obviously you can just go watch it in 2D anyway, which will probably be yeah. better because it's actually been shot that way. Mm. Um, so that's very good. That's our uh, first choice. Uh, my first choice uh, for this is a the long-awaited return of someone we've talked about a lot on the 
show before. Um, I'm talking about the return of Shane Carruth, director of Primer, uh, which was ages ago. It was maybe 35 years ago. <laughs> um, no, when was it? 10 years ago? Yeah, uh, I want to say 2003. Yeah, that's when we'll say we'll agree on that. Um, but he's got a new film coming out called Upstream Colour, and I watched the trailer today, and I haven't got a fucking clue what it's about, but it looks amazing, and it it will probably be great. So uh, that's really all I've got to say about that. What have you got to say about it, Ed? Um, I've got to say that Primer was 2004, so I was wrong. Ah, but, damn uh, it. He, yeah, he is a, a fascinating and strange man, is Shane Kruf. You know, he made this... Uh, inscrutable, fascinating science fiction film, uh, you know, one of the best time travel films ever, even though it's almost, you'd need a degree in uh, quantum physics to understand what the fuck goes on in it. Um, mm. But, you know, he's someone who's uh, obviously sort of massive, hugely intelligent, sort of bristling with ideas, uh, and um, it's been too long since he's actually sort of made a film. So the, the the prospect of him doing a second one and maybe having more than ten pounds to make it, which I think is what um, Primer was made for. Five. Uh, it was actually five uh, pounds. Five. Mm. Yeah, they didn't have lunch one day. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that that's a, a mouthwatering uh, sort of prospect. Um. I yeah. I do think that's going to be a, a very good one. Uh, going from this film, which is a very smallish film. Um, to your next pick, which uh, is going to take the concept of scale to brave new heights. Do you see what I did there, Ed? Which what is it? I'm not sure. What to say. It's uh, <laughs> oh, it's the only film you've picked with giant robots and monsters in it. Oh, Pacific Rim. Yeah. Yes, uh, the new film from uh, Guillermo del Toro, who hasn't made a film since Hellboy to the Golden Army, which was uh, he's not been absent because he's produced a load of stuff that's come out in the last few years. Um, and weirdly enough, got involved with uh, DreamWorks as a producer, so he's got his credit on things like Kung Fu Panda and stuff like that. Um, Weird. Which I think uh, has probably uh, helped line his pockets a little bit. Um, yeah, so this is the first film he's made in, in four years, or five years, um, because he got kind of... He, he was originally signed on to direct The Hobbit, and then um, that uh, obviously fell through because it was taking far too long, and he sort of... He, he walked away and let uh, Peter Jackson direct it to um, the detriment of everyone, from what I've heard. Um, mm. But now he's coming back with a huge-scale um, action movie in which uh, giant robots fight giant aliens. And yep. I am really looking forward to it. Uh, I think that he is um, a director with a tremendous uh, ability to kind of create intelligent but fun uh, action fare, but also he's someone who... Uh, he doesn't think that he's above um, those sort of things. He's someone who kind of comes from a place of really loving sort of genre um, uh, cinema. And um, that is kind of... I think that will play into it. You know, he can make a film that is really good, but which at the same time doesn't kind of have pretensions that it's not about giant robots fighting giant aliens. Mm. And it is worthwhile if only because... Uh, it is the only time in history where we can look at a film and see that Idris Elba was brought in to replace Tom Cruise. Wow. No, uh, no uh, other franchise in film history will have uh, involved that, but it's um, something... He, he, I think uh, Guillermo del Toro has basically said that if it's a success, he'll just kind of, he wants to make one every few years because he just really enjoys... It's the sort of thing that you, he's kind of like a big kid, really, in that regard. You know, he 
sees something that he likes and he just wants to kind of play around with it. And I think that sense of fun brought to uh, giant robots fighting each other rather than mm. sort of the stupidity of the Transformers films. Yeah. I think it could be pretty um, good. Uh, also sounds like a porn film, Pacific Rim. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible title. Um, and uh, it, it it kind of uh, gets a snort out of me every time. Um, um, my next choice is a film called Snowpiercer, which is, I believe, I think we kind of mooted it earlier, the English language debut of a Korean director whose name I always get wrong, so I'm just going to double check it because I don't want to upset anyone. Go on, Ed, what is it? I can't find it in my notes. Uh Bong Joon-ho, uh, that's Bong right. Bong Joon-ho, yeah. I said it earlier, yeah. but I'd forgotten. Yeah, he directed uh, The Host, which is a uh, really great uh, kind of monster movie, which kind of uh, subverts a lot of the conventions of monster movies, um, and, you know, is also uh, kind of really exciting and thrilling, um, but also kind of quite melancholy. It's kind of weird. Um, but then um, he also directed what I consider to be one of the best films of like the last 20 years, which is Memories of Murder. Mm. Have you seen that one, Ed? I haven't seen that one. I've seen the host, and I've seen uh, Mother. Mother, yeah. Um, Memories of Murder is is truly, truly fantastic. It's a kind of it's a kind of a milestone film. But he's got a film. It's a kind of a cracker sounding sci-fi about the last survivors of an ice age. They're all on a train, and the train's got like a big kind of uh, like snowplow on the front of it, and can pierce the snow. Hence, Snowpiercer, and uh, it's got it's got Chris Evans in it. not the erstwhile Channel 4 host of TFI Friday, uh, but the one who's, you know, on, in all those films now. Um, and, yeah, it just sounds intriguing. And, and to be honest, the name, uh, it was enough to kind of intrigue me. Uh, have you heard anything more about this film, Ed? Uh, more or less just what um, you've just said, you know, in terms of the, the cast and, and the director. Really, that's all I need to hear, because obviously uh, Bong Joon-ho is, is terrific. I mean, I love the host. The host is so much fun. Um, yeah. I think that he's the sort of he's uh, one of the, the the slew of sort of great uh, Korean directors that have been coming out in the last few years, and uh, I like the fact that he's doing what is an English language debut, but it's not a Hollywood film. It's kind mm. of like a co-production from a few different countries, and yeah. um, so it makes me think that it's not going to suffer from some of the same uh, compromises that might be demanded of say. Uh, Kim Ji Woon, who's obviously directing the the Arnold Schwarzenegger film The Last Stand, which um, mm. I doubt will have the same sort of crazy energy of some of his other films, or mm. um, I mean maybe Park Chan Wook with Stoker probably has had a lot more freedom because it's a smaller film and it's not dealing with an aging action star. But yeah. uh, I, I th- those are all three directors who I'm always uh, really excited to see what they're going to do next. So, uh, mm. you know, I'm, I'm really excited by Snowpiercer. Uh, what's your next one, Ed? My next one is uh, Much Ado About Nothing, Joss Whedon's follow-up to The Avengers. So I assume yep. it will make a billion dollars worldwide. Um, yes. Uh, no, his, uh, his uh, modern-day uh, set adaptation of the Shakespeare play, Much Ado About Nothing, um, set basically in his house, which mm-hmm. he um, filmed as a kind of creative release and side project whilst he was in post-production on the Avengers just kind of got all his friends around and shot it black and white uh, and then kind of released it out into the world um, 
or announced it to the world it got sort of very quietly and then uh, revealed they'd been working on it. It played at, at Toronto and basically uh, the reviews for it were basically said that it's a really lively, clever adaptation that's a huge treat for sort of fans of, of Whedon in terms of his sort of television work. Um, primarily because pretty much everyone in it's someone who's been in one of his TV shows and who basically agreed to do it because they love him so much. Yeah. Uh, which uh, is great news for me. Obviously, it's a very, it's a terrific play, you know, so, and, and in the hands of someone who obviously has a reverence for the, for the work and who's a, a really, he was basically working with people that he loves. Uh, I mm. think it could be, hope, I'm hoping that that will kind of come across on screen. Yeah, um, it certainly sounds like um, a very interesting experiment um, and something that was done as a creative release can only be uh, quite interesting to watch because you're seeing someone who's spent all their time working against blue screen with giant green monsters and Norse gods and lots of CGI and millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, and then all of a sudden it's it's shot on black and white, isn't it, as well, on like a little digital camera um, just kind of in his house and I think that something like that could be very very interesting to watch I'm not sure what the release will be like in the UK but um, they're kind of bringing it out in the, is it in the summer Ed over there yeah it is it's coming out in the summer I think it's getting a relatively small release um, mm-hmm. but obviously I don't think it costs a huge amount of money to make so no. uh, unless unless Nathan Fillion like came in and just demanded scale or something yeah uh, Nathan Fillion I I don't know who he's playing in it, but he is a perfect Don Pedro in my eyes. I hope he's playing Don Pedro. Um, my next choice is uh, Before Midnight, um, the third in the constantly surprising series of films made by Richard Linklater starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as uh, lovers, I suppose, is probably the wrong way to put it, but uh, kind of people who wander around and talk to each other a lot. Uh, Jesse and Celine first met them in Before Sunrise and then we had Before Sunset which exceeded everyone's expectations and was one of those sequels that uh, builds on and improves uh, the original um, and now we've got a third one which was kind of done under wraps and didn't, it was it kind of done on the sly a bit Ed yeah it was because um, I think it was announced like uh, in sort of interviews that I think uh Julie Delpy was probably doing to support uh, Two Days in New York. Mm. Um, it'd been it'd been mooted for a while. People were saying, you know, that because because Richard Linklater basically said that they enjoy making them so much that they would love to just kind of revisit these characters every ten years. But there mm. was no kind of definite kind of word on what was going to happen with it. And then Julie Delpy said, "Oh, we're, we might film it next year." And then um, sort of like a few months later, the news came through that it had been filmed in. Florence or something, and they'd wrapped, they completely wrapped, and it was uh, just this kind of thing that took everyone by surprise. It went from being something that was maybe in the works to a film, and like completed mm. and ready to be released. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of come from nowhere, and um, you know, delightfully so. And as you say, the, the first two films are fantastic, um, yeah. and it's a rare case of a, a sequel being better than the first one or at the very least kind of it kind of makes the first one seem incomplete without mm. it like until the second one was released I don't think anyone was clamouring for a sequel to before um, Sunset but wait which one's first? Before Sunrise is first yeah before um, so before Sunrise but as soon as before Sunset came out you were like oh it, 
it always should have been two films. It always needed mm. them to come back in ten years' time and, and see what had happened to these two guys and see if they managed to meet up or whatever. So uh, I think the idea of coming back again... Also, everyone, all those three main people involved always seem to just be so uh, energised by being together that seeing that energy come back, um, you know, I think that could be really, really exciting. Yeah, they they all seem to bring their A-games when living in that world, don't they? Because um, Hawk and Delpy write the scripts, don't they, as well, with, with Link later. So it's a real collaborative effort and, and everyone kind of uh, brings what they're going to bring to it. So that's one to really look forward to. Um, what else have you got? Uh, next on my list would be uh, The World's End which is the latest film by the team of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, the people behind uh, uh, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead and going back in time spaced. Um, a film that is shrouded in mystery, but they know that, so far we know that it's a film about a group of friends who get together to recreate sort of a, a pub crawl that they had when they're in their um, late 20s uh, and who... Uh, wind up on a quest that may or may not lead to the to them saving the world so it seems to be their spin on sort of apocalypse end of the world movies mm. um and i think that you know i think edgar wright's a fantastic uh director i think he's he's uh bet- between um potfers and, and Shaun of the dead and scott pilgrim he's really evolved into this guy who's sort of got his own sort of sensibility and, and this uh, he's, he's kind of unlike a lot of comic directors working at the moment because whilst a lot of a lot of modern comedy has kind of been influenced by the, the Apatow style which is essentially to sit back let people say funny things and then find it in editing his films always feel as if they've been sort of really painstakingly thought out you know the shots are always really well composed he knows how to use framing and editing to kind of sell a joke uh, rather than just relying on the script or the the actors but he also appreciates the importance of actors kind of being able to improvise or or just kind of come up with something so there's still that sense of spontaneity in his stuff and um you know just him and and sean pegg and nick frost are such great sort of friends who who just love working with each other and love each other so much that you that that sort of love for anything they do together uh really comes across um I saw the the cast. So I knew that it was happening, and I knew that Frost and Peg were in it, and I didn't really know anything beyond that until I saw the picture of the cast posted, and it's uh, those two: Martin Freeman, Paddy Considine, and Eddie Marsan. Is that right? Is that the cast? That is correct. Yes. Yeah, and I, I just looked at it, and I just thought, man, this is going to be good. And uh, I really didn't like Scott Pilgrim uh, versus the World. Um, it really rubbed me up the wrong way, and I kind of found it really boring. Um, and but I really do like Shaun of the Dead, and I really do like Hot Fuzz and, and Spaced, and I kind of hope that for me that I'll find something more in it because I like spending time with those people under right direction. Um, but yeah, let's see kind of where that one goes. Um, when's that out? That is out over, over here. Um, it's out in October. So, so um, we'll we'll get it a bit bit sooner. I I should imagine so. Uh, next one I've got on my list is. 
uh, Nebraska, which is the new film from Alexander Payne. Uh, as I've said before, I was slightly disappointed by his last effort, uh, The Descendants, but uh, Alexander Payne is, is, you know, one of the uh, best American filmmakers working today. And the film sounds intriguing about a road trip uh, between a father and son. The father is now Colic, played by Bruce Dern, and the son is uh, played by Will Forte, uh, who is someone I wouldn't have thought of to step up to kind of play a, a kind of uh, dramedy role as it were uh, as he seems to be the kind of always the goofy foil in most things um, and yeah it just sounds uh, it's got Stacey Keach in it as well and I'm a big fan of Stacey Keach um, so I'm just really looking forward to seeing Alexander Payne and hopefully this is kind of feels scaled down it feels less reliant on star power and hopefully it'll be something more a bit like Sideways which uh, is my favourite of his films um, and yeah one I'm very much looking forward to I think it's, right out, it's out right in awards contention time at the end of next year yeah it's also got uh, Bob Odenkirk in the cast and, you know, oh god oh, it just gets better and better yeah, so yeah, I I I think I liked the Descendants more than me, although I do think the first half is is pretty flawed. But um, yeah, I think uh, with that cast, you know, and and Payne, you know, uh, with something that's not so. Um, I, I think the thing that's really great about his films is that they don't sort of aim to be awardsy, whereas mm. the Descendants kind of really felt like it was going for being an awards contender. Oh yeah. It did, uh, and, and whereas this doesn't, it doesn't leap out to me as a film that's really trying to get awards. Uh, and if it turns out to be like fantastically good in the way that Sideways was, mm. or about Schmidt or, or Election, yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very much excited to see what Alexander Payne can do because he's disappointed me, and I really want him to get back in my good books. Um, right, we've got one more left each. What's your last one, Ed? My last one is um, Side Effects, which is the uh, latest film from uh, Steven Soderbergh. The I want to say four films he's released in two years. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, and he uh, is retiring still, obviously. Yeah, but I think he's going to fit in another sort of twelve films before he gets done with it. Yeah, um, this is uh, closer in sort of scale and uh, tone to um, Contagion, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but I appreciated. Um, I thought it was a, it was a very well put together, uh, if too clinical, um, thriller um, uh, about a young woman played by Rooney Mara, who's a great actress. I, I think she's uh, really great. Um, mm -hmm. She uh, plays a woman who's uh, suffering from depression uh, and she's uh, taking uh, pills in order to treat it. Um, she's married to uh, Channing Tatum. Oh, the, uh, Channing the, Tatum. The, the man of the moment. Mm. Um, and uh, they're very happy together. She's, uh, you know, she seems to be getting better because of these side effects, because of these pills. But then she starts to suffer from side effects. And hey, that, hey, Ed, that's the name of the movie. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping that whoever says the word side effects first in the film kind of says it in a really dramatic way <laughs> for fans of people who hear the name of the movie in the in the film itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, she starts to sort of have hallucinations and then there's a murder which she may or may not have been involved with but she's being investigated for it um, which also brings in her sort of psychologist played by Jude Law who may be having sort of a, a sexual relationship or at least obsession with her and from the trailer it looks uh, it looks very very intense and very sort of small scale uh, in the sort of way that a lot of the best 
uh, Soderbergh films are. And with that sort of cast, I'm really, really uh, excited to see what he, he does with it because I think he's uh, he's on he's on very good form lately. Is uh, is Soderbergh? Is our Steve? Well, to be honest, Ed, you had me at Channing Tatum. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm I'm all over that shit. That was on my list as well. But um, I'm going to finish things off with um, the film event of the year. Um, and I'm going to back it now and say it's going to be an amazing 90 minutes, uh, even though I fully realise that it could be a crushing disappointment and we might have to pretend this time next year that it never happened. Um, and this is Anchorman 2, the legend continues. Um, I think... It's kind of really hard to dislike Anchorman, uh, mm. a film that um, that kind of relies so much on you know getting a load of comedians in, like you say, the Apatow school of uh, getting comedians into a room and just getting them to kind of improvise. And they did it so much in Anchorman that they actually managed to make a second film out of all the, the footage they shot. Um, but it just works doesn't it in Anchorman it it just uh, it, it feels like it starts and you think this is going to be a one joke movie and it's going to get tired after 20 minutes but it just keeps going and going and going and it's still really good and it has that rewatchable uh, quality to it which is really great that said I don't think we needed a sequel but when it was announced I couldn't help but feeling just a little bit giddy with excitement yeah I mean the thing that works I think about with Anchorman which kind of uh doesn't for a lot of the films that kind of have followed it and have used a similar sort of heavily improvised sort of feel is that the um, Anchorman pays almost no attention to a plot. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of has one to string everything together, but it's essentially a film that doesn't care about its story. It's more of a case of we have these incredibly funny actors, we have these sort of really broad, silly characters that go in and play. We're going to try and be as funny as possible within those constraints as it is possible to be and um, I think that is a, a a idea that can is hard to mess up really when you do have those performers together um, yeah. as, as opposed to some of the sort of Apatow films which um, I, don't, I don't want to label it with, with him because some of the films that suffer from this um, aren't directed or produced by Judd Apatow but it's kind of a, a, a vibe that's kind of entered modern comedy um, of essentially trying to tell stories, films that do have um, reasonably strong stories, but then just kind of having people ad lib through the scenes to kind of, and then just choosing the best things with no sort of regard for pacing or timing. Mm. Whereas I think if you're just basically going, yeah, we don't give a shit about the the, uh, the plot line, then that technique kind of goes down a little smoother. Mm. Yeah. And do you think it's going to work out, Ed, or have you got a, a, a bad feeling about it? I've got very high hopes for it. Um, I think the uh, you know I, I love I love the first Anchorman. It's one of those films I really associate with with university and just constantly rewatching and quoting with people all the time because mm. it's just endlessly sort of quotable and rewatchable. Um, and I think that uh, those like the various people involved have had sort of up and down sort of ten years, but those characters are so well-developed from the first film that essentially all they really need to do is put the suits back on and the, the hair pieces and just kind of get to work. And I think that uh, the, it'll at best be... At worst, it'll be watchable. Yeah. And it'll be, you know, you get these really funny people together and they just just let them sort of riff and be funny. 
Uh, at best, it could just be, you know, sort of a joyous, kind of relentlessly silly uh, situation. Yeah, which I'm looking forward to immensely. Um, right, well, I think that that pretty much fucking covers it. We've talked for nigh on two hours about the joys that uh, 2013 holds cinematically. So it better live up to our uh, high billing because we've uh, uh, built it up quite a lot now, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it looks you know for a very interesting year i mean there were loads of films we could have talked about but we just don't have time because there's too many mm. uh and i think that there's it's it's the sort of year which at the end of it i think we'll be able to look back on it and either it will either be littered with absolute failures which at least tried something or will be just like yeah this was a really fun year mm. um and that's uh, that's got me very very excited yeah cool so um have a great 2013 everyone um we'll see you next year um and see how right we were with our um kind of picks for the films of the year um but no we're going to come back and do a preview of tv aren't we ed i think yeah we're going to sort of look at the the new series that's starting but mainly i think we're going to talk about sort of the old staples the stuff that we really like and that all of everyone else should really like as well uh, yeah and you know just uh Especially because I think there's a, there's a few big sort of series ending this year, which I think uh, we'll want to kind of talk about and, and, and their sort of legacy or, or what have you. Um, and uh, just talk about the general state of TV, which, uh, as ever, is fairly rosy. Yeah, and we would have talked about that in this podcast. That was the plan anyway, but we'd be here until, well, 5 a.m. my time, because uh, it's pretty late. So, uh, until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>